Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. Um, while I'm thinking about it, uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention was um, if you weren't able to make it to our prayer time on Monday, we missed you. We had a great time of uh, fellowship and prayer together, and we hope to do this routinely, so maybe uh, if your schedule allows, you'll be able to join us next time. We'd love to have you there. But what we did do was significant as we prayed for each of the ministries in uh, our church body. And so what I did is I made that packet that we prayed through together on Monday available to you. And so it's a light blue color. It's out on the kiosk. And if you would be willing to to join with us, and I hope you would, in praying for the life and ministry of Melanie Park, I'd encourage you to grab one of those and take it home with you. And if we run out, I'll make more copies. But uh, we'd love to offer that to you. Well, we're going to get back in our study of 1 John this morning, and uh, as we do, I want to remind you of where we left off last. Uh, You'll remember, John is writing this letter uh, to a church that has been fractured by the division of a false doctrine, and as a result, some have walked away from the fellowship of this body, and so John is writing to encourage those who have remained. His purpose, his hope is to... Uh, strengthen the assurance of their salvation and that promise of eternal life through their faith in Jesus Christ. But in doing so, he's having to to overcome the, the influence of the false teachers who have minimized the impact of, of sin on our relationship with God. And, and if the cross of Christ is... Uh, or if sin is not that big of a deal, it's not all that important, then, then the cross of Christ becomes insignificant by comparison as well. And by growing insensitive to, to sin, we just get more and more comfortable in the compromise and, and the ways of this world. And, and we all know that's a dangerous place to be. And so in many ways, what John is doing in his letter is, is sending a wake-up call, right? He's letting them know that they can't get comfortable in this world of compromise. He wants Christians to to take sin seriously. He reminds us that that we need to be a people of confession who who go before the Lord and confess our sins and and know that God is faithful and just to to forgive us our sins and, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That being said, we need to be careful not to overcompensate on the other side by focusing more on our sin than we do on our Savior. Because the end result has the same effect. Because it turns our attention to to us, to ourselves, instead of putting our minds and our hearts on Christ. The only answer that I I see, and it's repeated throughout Scripture, is is what I'll call a Gospel-centered life. One that is willing to, to examine sin in our life against the view of the cross where the Gospel informs us of Christ's ability to overcome sin's control. The Gospel tells us of the gift of the Spirit in the life of the believer and how He makes us increasingly uncomfortable with sin so that we come before Him and and find forgiveness and, and hope as He then conforms us increasingly into the image of Christ as we walk in fellowship with Him. Only then do we live out of that identity of who we are in Christ. Only then do we refuse the deception, those false doctrines that try to convince us of something different. 
Because as we will see in our passage this morning, right thinking always leads to right action. Right thinking leads to right action. And a focus on the life of Christ is what motivates us to a life like Christ. And that image is seen no more clearly than in how we love one another. And as we will see in our passage this morning, that's the heart of what John wants us to hear. And so let's pray that that penetrates our heart as we look at our word together. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we know that every word spoken in the testimony of Scripture was inspired by you and the breath that you breathe into the life of those who wrote them. And so we know that there's a purpose, there's an intent to what's in the, the Scripture that we have before us. And so as we look at our passage this morning, Lord, we, we pray that whatever that intent was in, intended to be, when those words were first spoken, that they would have that same effect in our life this morning. That we would be changed by them, conformed into your image in a way that glorifies you. So that's our prayer, Father, and we offer that in the name of Christ. Amen. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 3 if you're not already there. 1 John chapter 3 and follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 11. It says in verse 11, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We'll see as we look at this passage that, that John will use uh, a tool that he has uh, repeated several times in his letter so far. It's that tool of contrast, right? Where we know he's t- taken that contrast and he's compared light and darkness. Lawlessness with righteousness. And as we will see in our passage this morning, he'll do the same with, with love and hate. But we need to see how these are connected to one another, not just separate topics in and of themselves. For example, when we walk in the light, we will grow in righteousness, which naturally brings forth that that fruit of love. John says in, in verse 11 of this passage that that message to love one another specifically is one that, that we've heard from the beginning. I believe he's once again pointing back to the life of Christ where He wants us to to be grounded and and strong in our faith and understanding. And we remember the words of Christ in John chapter chapter 13, verse 34. These are familiar words, but this is what He's pointing back to. It says in verse 34, Jesus speaking, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He goes on in chapter 15, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than he who lays down his life for his friend. And then in verse 17, This command I give to you, that you love one another. See, John is taking them back to the, the life and testimony of Jesus Christ, upon which their faith needs to be founded. 
He is the one that made that connection between our fellowship with God and our relationship with one another. We saw it in that passage where he says, they will know you are my disciples. They will know that you love me. How? Because of your love for one another. It's the evidence of the relationship that you have with me. Keep in mind that that John is, is writing these words in the context of those who have broken fellowship within this body and in doing so have given evidence of the absence of that love for one another. John goes on to to give them an illustration of why this is the case by turning to the example of Cain and Abel. It tells us that Cain did evil things to his brother because he was ruled by an evil heart. Even though as we look at this example in Genesis, their actions towards God look very similar at face value. In fact, let's go to that together. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. If you're like me, Genesis chapter 4 looks like this in your Bible somewhere. (laughs) Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Let's walk through this together. Let's begin reading in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. I want you to notice to begin with that they both come to God making an offering. Cain, it says, brought some of the fruit of the ground. Abel's description says that he brought the fat portions of the firstlings. (laughs) That description in the difference is intended to be specific to inform us that that Cain's offering was really nothing special. But what Abel brought was the best part of the best animal. We need to understand that in this context, there really wasn't a difference. It didn't matter that one brought an an offering of grain and the, the other brought an offering of an animal. That wasn't the difference in the offering. The difference in the offering was the motivation in their heart. Let's see how that continues in the second part of verse 4. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became angry and his countenance fell. You see, God is not looking at the, the offering itself. God is looking at the heart behind it. And God rejected Cain's sacrifice. Because his heart simply was not in it. And this is a key point. I want you to hear this very clearly. I want you to notice how Cain's anger toward his brother was motivated by the guilt of his own sin in the presence of the righteousness of Abel. See, that righteousness is what exposed the sin of his brother. And and God confronts that issue in his life. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance falling? If you do well, 
will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. It's interesting in this dialogue that's happening here that that God is providing a way of escape, isn't He? He's trying to help Cain out by explaining what's going on and, and letting him know what he needs to do to prevent sin from mastering him. He, he urges Cain to, to turn to God instead of turning to his brother in anger. But Cain's actions toward his brother revealed his evil heart. And unfortunately, sin became his master. Look at what happens in verse 8. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What an interesting question that Cain asks in response to, to what God had asked of him. Am I my brother's keeper? It's kind of like, I'm only responsible for me, right? God says, no. That's not right. You are your brother's keeper. And sin will consume you when you cannot look Beyond yourself. That's exactly what happened. Cain's hatred towards his brother was motivated by the guilt of the sin in his own life. As he saw it in comparison to the righteousness of his brother. And instead of turning in repentance to God, he turned in vengeance towards his brother. With that example in mind, John then says in that next verse in our passage, verse 13, he says, then don't be surprised when the world hates you. You see, we are called to love one another. And when our righteous deeds are received with a righteous heart, a rich and meaningful relationship will result. But when these same deeds are done in the context of an unrighteous heart, it will only provoke anger from the guilt of sin that is exposed. In other words, just because you're a good person doesn't mean that everyone's going to like you. Because your love will eventually bring you to the place where if it's sincere, you will need to speak the truth in love. After all, if you were in a car with someone, okay, just pretend like you're in a car, you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden they start to veer off the road, okay, and you know that there's a cliff right in front of them, would it be loving to say nothing to them? Of course not. It'd be the most disastrous and unloving thing you could do, right? Your love would compel them to say, look, you're headed for a cliff. We need to get back on the road again. But very often, even when your intentions are pure, some people are still going to get mad at you for telling them how to drive. It's just the reality. John is urging us to love one another as Christ 
loved us. But just as we see the rejection of Christ's love, we can expect to see the same of ours. And for the same reason. Righteous love condemns a guilty heart. And people will often seek to eliminate the source of their guilt. death into life because we love the brethren who does not love he who does not love abides in death everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren you see, John is still writing to, to help his reader have an assurance of their salvation. And a Christ-like love, John is arguing, is an assurance of salvation. And here's why. The evidence of Christ's love proves the presence of Christ's life. John turns to that tool of contrast to make his point. He begins by describing <coughs> hatred's power to, to bring death to the point that he suggests that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. <laughs> that, that sounds like an overstatement, right? It's pretty strong. But he's only repeating what he heard from Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, this is what Jesus says. Verse 21. Jesus says, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or you idiot, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow. His point is that in God's court, that the heart behind hatred is the same that is behind murder. Because they both share the desire to rid someone out of your life. Right? When it's murder, we do so physically. But when it's hatred, we do so emotionally. We pretend they don't exist. We come distant and cold. But in either case, you're not giving life to them. You're withholding life from them. It's the same heart behind each. And when hatred rules your heart, John says it brings death. Because that person is refusing to abide in the life of Christ in the example of His love for us. As someone once said, hatred is like acid. It destroys both the vessel in which it is stored as well as the object on which it is poured. Hatred has the power 
to bring eternal separation from God, look no further than Cain. So, does that mean, which probably some would be asking, and I know I did when I read the passage, I said, so does this mean that if you're a Christian that you can't have anything against somebody, that you can't be angry? That's not the case. As Christians, we're human too, and we're going to deal with hurt that people cause us or or those that we love. But what John is saying, and we do need to hear this clearly, is that we cannot hold on to the assurance of our salvation while refusing to let go of the bitterness that we have towards another person. In other words, I lose the confidence of Christ's life in me when I don't see the evidence of His love and forgiveness flowing through me. Because remember, His is a love that turns the other cheek. It is a love that forgives the undeserving. It is a love that is extended even to His enemies and to the ones who persecute Him. So let me ask you, as I would ask myself, do I have that kind of love? Do you have that kind of love? As you're asked that question, I don't know what your response is, but I'll tell you what mine is. In true honesty, no. I do not. In and of myself, I do not possess that kind of love. That is an accurate assessment for all of us, I believe. And I believe it's John's point as well. Because the evidence of Christ's love validates the presence of Christ's life because we simply do not possess it on our own. It has to come from Him. That's why it's an assurance of our salvation. Because there's no other explanation when it exists in our life. John begins in verse 16 by saying, We know by this. That phrase is intended to to refer to a knowledge that has been gained through diligent contemplation. You see, it, it exists in a person who has their eyes fixed on Jesus as the author and perfecter of their faith. And that faith is expressed in the love, that self-sacrificing love that they have for one another. To the degree as, as we see in the life of Christ that He laid down His life for us, so we should go and do the same. But we don't demonstrate that love just by by looking at it as an example and in, 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 in mimicking what we see. Okay? It's not as simple as that. It's kind of like me wanting to learn how to juggle, so watching a few YouTube videos and picking up some balls, and all of a sudden, boom, I can do it. Right? It doesn't happen, does it? If it were that, if it were that easy, everybody could do it. For well, the love of Christ, in the same way, is not a learned behavior. Okay? It is an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit within the life of a believer. So that when you see that evidence of a self-sacrificing love in me, then you and I both know that's not me. That's Christ in me. I am only expressing to you what I have been first given through my relationship with Christ. I give. You give. 
out of what you've been given. And what a great assurance when we can see the evidence of that in our life. We should look at that and and know that, that that is the evidence of Christ conforming work within us because there is no other explanation for it. Now, John, I think, knows our heart and knows that we can mentally ascribe to these things and say, yeah, I believe that's true, that's right. But he doesn't stop there. He wants to give us an example of what that looks like. Look at verse 17. It says, But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. See, within these last two verses, I believe John prevents us from getting stuck in principle and not moving into practice. We might verbally assent to the the need to give our life for someone we love, but the fact of the matter is most of us will never be put in that situation, praise God. But the heart behind the willingness to give up your life for someone you love is the same heart behind your willingness to give up your possessions for someone you love. Your readiness to do the one justifies your willingness to do the other. So John wants us to consider a scenario that he creates. He begins by describing someone who has the world's goods. I believe this description is simple because it's intended to to describe someone who has just what they need. This is not someone who is living in the lap of luxury where they have all kinds of excess. They have what they need. So that anything they give will be some sort of sacrifice. It's not given out of excess. This person, he goes on to say, is one who sees a need. He observes a brother in need, it says. And the description in the original language intends to communicate somebody who is not just passing by, but he stops long enough to understand and appreciate that need. Okay? So he sees a brother in need and he understands what's going on in that person's life. But then it goes on to say that I believe in the absence of following the Spirit or even the presence of the Spirit that they close their heart against them. That phrase in the original language is interesting. It literally means to shut up one's entrails from them. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? And the reason that word is used, that language is used, is because it's always been felt that the the emotions are felt right here in your gut, right? That's where you feel it. So that when you see a difficult situation or something that just absolutely breaks your heart, what do we say? It's gut-wrenching. And that's why. That's where we feel that emotion in our life. So this is a person who sees that need, who understands that need, but it says it shuts off the emotional response. They refuse to become emotionally involved. They distance themselves. They don't get close enough to care because then they can protect themselves from getting involved. You see, they talk about love, though. They talk about it a lot, it says. But when it comes to actually demonstrating it, they are unwilling. Because very often they 
are unwilling to give up something for others that they would rather keep for themselves. Self-protection is more important than self-sacrifice. John looks at that example and, and by implication he's teaching us that in the life of the Christian it should be just the opposite. We should actually demonstrate love a whole lot more than we should ever talk about love. We should be a people who sees, who understands. And even beyond that, we are willing to, to enter in, to become emotionally involved. And that's hard. Because you're going to hurt with people who hurt. You're going to weep with the people who weep. This is not people that you just judge from a distance. It's those that you are willing to, to enter in. It's like a, the love this proverb describes when it says, Tell me how much you know of the sufferings of your fellow man, and I will tell you how much you have loved them. It's the same idea here. It is a love that is grounded in the gospel that proclaims that God so loved the world that He what? He gave. He gave. He gave of Himself so that you could have life. He gave. When our heart is ruled by the Spirit, we should be inclined to go and do the same. See, sin is what causes us to live in a life of self-protection where we stay distant enough not to be get involved. But the love of Christ compels us to enter in so that we express that love by carrying that burden with them. It's the love of Christ that we experience every single day we walk with Him. So as we finish up this morning, I want us to to take into consideration the question that God asked Cain, and let me pose it to you. Are you your brother's keeper? Are you your brother's keeper? Let's start with me, okay? Terry and I have two boys, and uh, as most families, they keep us busy, right? Terry and I were joking. We had more homework this week together than we could have remembered in a long time because we felt like we went back to school helping our boys work through all their assignments this week. If you've got kids who've started school, you know what that's been like, right? You also know that sports and stuff started up. So we were at games and going to different places, and we love that. But it's another occupation of time, right? And there's stuff going on in youth, and there's stuff going on Sunday night. There's all kinds of things going on around us, and and we get pulled in a lot of directions. And somewhere in the midst of all that, my sweet wife and I have got to figure out a way to to stay connected with each other in the busyness of that routine. And there's lots of things that are happening. And I know some of you are looking at me and you're going, you don't know the half of it, (laughs) right? You got it easy compared to what we're dealing with, and I believe that's true. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to take that routine of life, that that busyness that we can all appreciate and understand, and then I want you to introduce into that the relationships that we have within the fellowship of this body. Now, all of a sudden, we have another layer of relationships, another layer of commitments that require something of us, right? Not to mention all the ministry needs and things that are going on. You heard it in the announcement this morning. We, we still need folks in the, the children's ministry. There's Lubbock Impact. There were guys out here this weekend working on the pergola. There, there's no shortage of needs. There never will be. 
Just last week, we talked about it, and I hope you've thought about that message that we each have a unique role. You're here for a purpose, gifted in a specific way to contribute to the body, to the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And yet, so often, we hear that message, and we learn of all these needs, and boy, our first reaction is what? I just don't have time for that. Translation. Am I my brother's keeper? You mean... I'm supposed to do stuff outside of my own little world? Yes. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. Paul says it this way. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. What that tells me is that when I am introduced into the family of God, into relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, I might not owe you anything (laughs) except the fact that I will always owe you love. I am indebted to you for our lifetime to give you that love. I am my brother's keeper, and so are you. And one of the qualities of that kind of love is sacrifice. Giving up something in my world for the benefit of someone else in their world. Biblical love always costs you something. Do we understand that, right? It's the example of Christ. It's the point of this passage. And it's the understanding that we need to make sure we have. Biblical love costs you something. And so really, what we talked about this morning fits perfectly with what we walked through last week. Living within community as God's people costs us something. There's a sacrifice involved. And here's something that I've noticed through the years. It's my own observation, but I do believe that you can see it evidenced in Scripture as well. I mentioned earlier that that loving one another is not a learned behavior, that it is a gift of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And, And although I believe that's true, you will not see that fruit of the Spirit in my life in the absence of my fellowship with Christ. In other words, my walk with Christ is the prerequisite for you being able to see the evidence of that love within me. I can only give to you out of what I first received from Him. And so healthy relationships in the body of Christ are dependent upon people who walk in a meaningful relationship with Christ. And not only that, we need to take it one step further. Because what I have seen is that that the the churches that do the best job of of caring for one another inside of the church are very often the very same churches that do a great job of caring for the needs of others outside of the church. Because there is a cascading effect that once the, the love of Christ has momentum, you can't stop it. Because whenever you're walking in fellowship with Christ and experiencing that love that He has for you, you can't help but give it away to the relationships that you have with one another. And when that relationship is rich and meaningful, you can't help but let that overflow into the world around you. It's the way God designed it and created it to be. And it's what He's called us to live. It's the evidence of our faith and trust in Him. It includes loving people who are not like you. Caring for people who disappoint you. It will require inconvenience and it will be an interruption to your routine of life 
as you step out of your comfort zone and, and into the life of someone else. But I also want you to know that Christ's love is sufficient. It's more than you could ever ask or imagine. And when you think about what you give to others, I want you to know that there's more than enough to refill that tank as you abide in Him. There's a passage in Romans that we're familiar with, uh, Romans 8. Just listen to what it says to validate what I just said. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, as it is written for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's a great promise that we need to hold firm to. And we need to walk in and share with one another and then give to the world around us. It's the gift we have. The gift of the love of Christ. And I pray that we would be a people who live that out consistently. Not just in here, but perhaps more importantly, out there. So let me pray for our time, and then I want to introduce you to a family. Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning to be reminded by your word of why we're here. Well, I don't know about anybody else, but it is so easy for me in the routine of life to get so overwhelmed by what we call in our home the dailies that we lose track of the eternal significance of the little things that you've called us to do in love for one another. How we express that to our family. How we express that within our church family. How we express that to those that we live and work and play around. Father, may we abide in you and experience the the wellspring of love that overflows out of our life and into our relationships with one another and then into the world around us because we are compelled by compassion to look, to see, and to engage, often in a way that costs us something. May that be a people that, may that describe who we are as your people pray this in your name. Amen. Before you're dismissed, I want to ask Scott and Gina Sims to come forward. Scott and Gina have three kids, starting from the youngest, Grant, and then Ava, and then Zach. You guys come up too. So this is a great time to introduce you to a new family because uh, uh, Scott and Gina and their family have gone through our welcome class. They've been a part of our church family for a while now. we were able to meet the Sims through uh, Moms in Prayer. Terry and Gina had prayed together for years through Moms in Prayer for our kids and for teachers and for our school systems. And we had a chance to meet them. Uh, Scott and I coached basketball together with our kids, and so great friendship with them. And they've taken a look at who we are as a church body, and they've, they've said to us, and they're saying to you, we want to be on board. We're committed. And I believe they've counted the cost, too. They realize that it requires something of them, and that's something that they are committed to. 
So I want to encourage you to come introduce yourself if you had not met them and welcome them to our church family. If you'll stand, let me close this in prayer and we'll carry on. God, thank you for Scott and Gina and for their kids, uh, Grant and Ava and Zach. I can speak uh, firsthand for seeing your love in their life, a home that truly seeks to follow you, uh, to honor you, and now wants to be a part of this church family so that we can encourage each other in the same. Father, thank you for the time we've had this morning to the praise and glory of your name. And it's in Christ's name that we pray.